good to have you on, John. Um, and I've been looking forward to having a bit of a chat. Um, I know you've done a lot of podcasts over the years. Um, so can I just start by getting you to tell us a little bit about, about yourself and about your Brazilian jiu-jitsu journey? Um, I guess it seems weird talking about that, but I, <laughs> I guess people must know that are interested. But <laughs> I started BJJ. Well, actually, what a lot of people don't know is, is the actual real story. So, so what happened was I was into martial arts as a teenager, as a kid. I, did, I started off with freestyle wrestling and did karate and taekwondo. <laughs> and then I left school, went overseas, followed in the footsteps of a well-known martial arts uh, pioneer trailblazer, a guy called Don Drager who back, he was a Marine um, for the U.S. forces. And he, back in the 60s, he traveled through India, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, Japan, extensively studying martial arts for many years. So he was like one of my childhood heroes. So when I left school, that's what I wanted to do. I I wanted to take a gap decade and, um, and do that and just do 10 years of that. Um, much to my parents' <laughs> disgust, <laughs> what are you doing? But um, I did, so I, so I followed in his footsteps and went over and trained in, in Southeast Asia and India, again, India, Japan, Thailand. I kind of followed in his footsteps fairly closely up until about, uh, I didn't do 10 years, I did about um, seven years of just being a dojo rat in various places. Uh, and then I, I, I found, you know, I wasn't making any money. I, obviously, I was just eking a living, doing various odd jobs here and there. So I decided I wrote an article for the then Australian martial arts magazine uh, about cross-training, you know, um, mixed martial arts. But this is in 1982, and, and people weren't into mixed martial arts in 1982. And sure. so I got a lot of flack back from the martial art community at that point saying, what would you know about mixing your martial arts ironically some of those very same people are now got a shingle up that reads mixed martial arts with them. <laughs> but they were saying you can't mix your martial arts and so i wrote back a reply to their reply the editor refused to publish my reply because he was a friend of theirs i became incensed overreacted went down to a local printing place asked them how much to publish a magazine they told me $10,000. I figured if I sold $10,000 worth of ads, I'll pay for the magazine and that'll be that. I got in my car, ran around everywhere, sold $10,000 on the proviso that I would do the magazine to various schools and shops and I put out the Australian Martial Arts magazine. It took me 10 issues to put the other magazine out of business. My mission was complete. I was lost <laughs> in, completely in the magazine. <laughs> <laughs> a slight overreaction. Uh, not an unfamiliar thing, I guess, for many martial artists who tend to overreact in the world. But sometimes yeah. overreacting, you know, gets you somewhere. And it was during the process of editing and, uh, you know, that, and writing that magazine that I came across Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. <laughs> Long story. So I guess the moral of that story is don't mess with John Will. <laughs> uh, don't, don't, don't mess with a 25-year-old version. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So that's how, that's how you first found Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. 
Yeah, there was a Brazilian guy out here surfing, a guy called Marcelo Beirin. All the old people would know who that was, the old school guys. And he was a surfer. He was in Australia, put up a challenge, $50,000, winner take all. And that was in 1984 or 85, which was not heard of. First of all, who had that money? No one. So it didn't happen, but it piqued my interest, um, you know, as an editor. So I wrote the story and then I ended up tracking him down and, and it and found my way to the Gracie garage in Torrance where I got my first five lessons off Horry and Gracie. Um, and in the, the fifth lesson there, which was cost me 500 US dollars back in 1985, which was more money than I had. <laughs> um, but the, I was lucky because the fifth lesson, he had his cousin come up from Brazil who was reigning national champion. That was Higan Machado. And he got Hegan to teach me my fifth class because he was taking his kids to Disneyland. And Hegan gave me like the best of all the classes, even though he had no English, like not a word, but, you know, passion and people trying to figure stuff out. And he was wanting to get the point across. Um, we kind of make a connection. And then eventually he said, don't train here, go to Brazil, come with me. And we've been best mates ever since. Fantastic. Mm. So... <clears throat> Obviously, you've been around in Brazilian jiu-jitsu circles for for longer than most people, certainly longer than most of the people who will be listening to this. Um, In that time, what changes have you seen in in Brazilian jiu-jitsu as a whole, both technically but also in the culture of the sport and how the people doing it have changed? Yeah. Um, There's been some changes. Um, First of all, when I started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in 1986. Um, the, I started in Brazil, uh, and, and in Brazil it was I, I wasn't aware of you know what it's like. You're in a foreign country. I couldn't speak the language. I didn't know who was training. To me, Henzo was a purple belt. Henzo Gracie, High and Hillion Gracie was a black belt. All the Machado black belts, all those guys. They were just a bunch of guys in a room. Like I didn't know who they were, how good they were. Um, or anything like that. Um, but after a couple of years, the Machados, through a connection with Chuck Norris, moved up to Los Angeles. When they did that, it opened up a little academy in Los Angeles. This is prior to the UFC. Um, at that point, the only people walking in the door were freaks. Like, you know, there were no normal humans doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, as far as I could tell at that point. You had to be a fighter or at least think you are a fighter or think you're a hard man and they were coming in to test it out. Um, and that was, that was who was populating the mat at that point. And it was only three or four years after the, maybe three years after the UFC, not immediately after, took a while, maybe two years, three years after the UFC, that actual, the normal kind of martial artists would say, you know what, there's something in this, I better come and learn. And they started coming in. And then I would actually go so far as to say it wasn't until like, like the year 2000 or thereabout were actually normal people, <laughs> um, you know, who weren't fighters and who weren't martial artists went, that's as interesting, let's start training. So it was quite different. And, and, and even then um, in the late 90s, all of us, you know, we all trained like with the idea in mind that it has to work in a real fight. So you can imagine there was no deep, there wasn't an emphasis on deep half guard. Um, there wasn't, you know, because the, the idea is if you could get punched in the face, we wouldn't do it. Sure. So it was a little bit because of not, 
not for any other reason than because of who was involved. You know, they were already martial artists who wanted to become better fighters or they were fighters. So we were like that. And I think the biggest change has been now there are people doing the art just for the pure pleasure of undertaking a, a complex thing, you know, and, and, you know, reveling in the complexity and beauty of it in and off, you know, for its, just for, its, for the sake of itself. They're not even thinking about fighting. They're just thinking about their inverted spider guard and all this stuff. So that's been a big change, you know, the, who was doing it. And overall, do you think that's been a change for the better or a change for the worse, or is it more complicated than that? Oh, no, I would say for sure a change for the better. Oh, yeah, I am 100% on that. Um, I'm not on the fence in any way. I, I used to a long time ago, you know, when I was one of those, me, Chris Howder, Bob Bass, David Meyer, we, yeah, well, not so much David. He was like a nice person, but, but <laughs> you know, we... we we all had our share of scraps and getting into trouble, and not so, we weren't starting it, but we would just had no ability to back down. So, <laughs> and also where we where we were living and, and inhabiting, um, we were testing our martial arts, and so that's quite limiting, Rosie. You know, it's like if you're if you're doing it just for fighting, yeah. And I've seen a lot of people with that view right now. You know, I only want to do the bits of martial arts that are going to work in a real fight. My answer to that. My view on that is it's going to be your view is going to be so narrow that you're going to be bored and you're going to give up quickly. Right. Whereas if you open yourself to the whole thing and just enjoy it all, because you're not fighting, you're, you're busy being a normal human being, contributing to society, having a family and living it. You know, we're not out there fighting now. So what are you talking about? You're doing all this training to do what? What street fights are you getting into? It doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> Um, and if you are, I'm questioning, you know, whether you've grown up. Um, <laughs> maybe you need to look at your lifestyle choices. Um, maybe a little, just a little. So, so I, I, I think it's much, um, I think that to, to say that we're only going to practice yeah. just to improve our ability to fight, I think that's too narrow. It's too silly. You'll give up. You'll give up. You won't end up doing any training. Um, and, and also it's actually Dave Meyer did the calculation once. You see, he worked it out. He did the math on um, 15 years of BJJ, the money he spent, the injuries he had, and <laughs> it was something like you just may as well get into 15 street fights and not defend yourself. <laughs> that, I love that, that way of be, looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> it was some, but he really yeah. did the math. I was, he'd showed it all. He said, no, this is what it's cost. You could hire a bodyguard for, for the 10% of the times where you're in really bad spots and still have money left over for this amount of operations and this amount of stuff and just take the beating. Like, so, <laughs> yeah. so to play devil's advocate slightly, do you think that means that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, as it's commonly taught, has become less effective for self-defense for the average person or for if for people who really want to get into it to learn how to fight um do you think that's um and do you think that's something that people should bear in mind or yes yes it, that, that i think that's a truth mm -hmm. um it certainly varies from academy to academy sure right um so if you come into my academy mm -hmm. um what happens when, because people come to my academy, I can speak for myself. When people come to my academy, there's a quite a large percentage, like I'm going to just guess, Rosie, I'm not sure the actual 
figures, but I'm going to yep. say, you know, 60 to 80% mm-hmm. of them, something like that. Certainly the lion's share of them, they want to come, they're saying they want to learn self-defense. Mm-hmm. Now, now 10 or 20% say, oh no, I want to learn Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I know who you are. I've Googled yep. things. You're my, I want you to be my coach. But, but really 80% of the people that walk into my academy mm-hmm. do not have a clue who I am. Mm-hmm. They just, they're just coming along to learn self-defense. So I have a duty of care mm-hmm. to provide training for that. So I don't, everyone has to do three months in my academy and where we put gloves on, we learn to shell up, we learn a fence, we learn some preemptive stuff, we learn, you know, so we cover off all mm-hmm. everything that I think you should learn in three months, some elbows and knees and headbutt. To, to get you squared away um, as well as some basic ground stuff but more self-defense oriented. So that's what I do for three months. And then they can stream into my BJJ classes. But, right, but a lot that's, of that's a really interesting approach actually because I think that's something that a lot of BJJ schools don't really um, give as much time to these days is those people mm. who are coming into it with, uh, I just want to know how to look after myself. Um, <laughs> having that um, effective curriculum that works for that. I think, unfortunately, there seems to be this um, where uh, when people sort of talk talk about self-defence, they focus on more the traditional traditional jiu-jitsu style of things, which um, I'm not sure, but um, I mean, that sounds like a, a, a really good approach that covers those basics and then let freeze people to, to look at the, the art in more detail. Yeah. Yes. Well, at least then at the end of the three months, I give them a choice, right? Mm-hmm. I, I say, now you can continue on this stream, this vein that you're going, and I offer two classes a week where there are pads and elbows and knees right. and it's more mm-hmm. an MMA-style approach, which is different yeah. than self-defense but because sure. they don't have yes. defense and they yeah. don't have preemptive yeah, yeah. strike. But, but I offer that two classes a week. Yeah, but eighty percent of them, after that three months, are hooked, uh, and and they do yeah. pure BJJ with fully with the knowledge of that this is going to be a long term undertaking, and you're not just doing it for self defence. And and there's probably probably twenty or thirty percent of them do do both for a while. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I mean, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about actually was um, I know you've said a lot in when I've been to your seminars and things like that, you talk a lot about the overlap between learning Brazilian jiu-jitsu and other life skills. So uh, the crossover between, um, it's not just about learning how to fight, it's about um, an approach to life in general. I think that's that's very much the, the feeling I get from you. Um, is that something that you've you've appreciated all along or is that something that you've picked up as you've gone? I, I think that's me. Mm-hmm. Um, well, clearly because, um, you know, it, every individual, every teacher has a different sure. approach. And, but my approach has been one of, you know, I mean, look, I've got a, I can read books. I've got a library, <laughs> you know, so I'm, I've, I've been interested in, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, understanding the world and understanding my part in the world and understanding myself and other people. And I'm kind of just interested. I'm curious about lots of things. So philosophy um, and how that's, see, I I think when you fully immerse yourself into something, I'm sure you can appreciate this. 
on many levels. It's it can be difficult to separate, you know, church and state. Like the way I live my life and the way I practice my martial arts is very, sure. it's very connected up, yeah. and it's very hard to tease it apart. And I'm not the kind of person. Um, like you, may, may I offer that that, that I, I don't like to be incongruent. Mm. So I, I don't want to be, you know, um, behaving, uh, paying attention to detail in my martial art, um, and then not doing that <laughs> in other aspects of my life. I, I don't, I don't want to be be um, have discipline in my training, but then not discipline. Or what, you know, I don't want to be loyal to my training, but not loyal to my wife. You know, so I, I, to me, it's all got to be the same. Um, that's the I'm not judging, and I and I'm not um, I'm not saying everyone should do this. I'm just saying that's my personal thing. My little <laughs> thing is I, I need it, my life to be very congruent everywhere. So the so yeah. it's it, I can't separate it out. So therefore, um, that comes out in my coaching and teaching and and whatever. And my students seem to like it um, because I I think that what I offer to them on the mat and off the mat is um, is more likely to improve their lives because of all those ways to leverage what we learn on the mat in their real life than learning another way to break an arm. Yes. Learning another way to break an arm is fun, but, but, <laughs> but, but, but it's not going to get, the, get them to own their house early and it's not going to make their relationship better. And, it's not, and I want all of that. I, I, you know, it's, it's, I'm shooting for the moon, Rosie, but I, I want to do it because anyone can teach people to fight more effectively. There's enough of them in the world. Yeah. They don't need another one. So I'm just trying to, I've always wanted for as long as I can remember, (laughs) um, by the way, um, I've wanted to just take that different path and perhaps offer a different approach. Excellent. No, I think there's a a real, um, a real need for people who can look at that bigger picture. I think because, uh, as I say, particularly, well, I think I think particularly for some of the youngsters coming into the sport, it's very easy to get focused on the, <coughs> um, I suppose, the sport itself and what you need to do to win competitions and things like that. I think being able to take that step back and look at that bigger picture is something that maybe comes over time. Um, and uh, I think that's... Well, you know, we, we both understand that leverage is a part of martial arts and this is one form yes. of leverage. I have a unique opportunity when I've got a captive audience mm-hmm. of people who are listening to me and respecting yep. me, mm-hmm. I've got an opportunity to maybe deliver something more than what they came for. Mm-hmm. So that, 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 that to, to not avail myself of that would be to not understand leverage. I, mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I'm leveraging the time that I have with them into something more meaningful than what they were expecting. So that's sure. that's important too. And if I wasn't doing that, I've lost a teaching moment. <clears throat> so, um, something that I remember you talking about. I was I was fortunate enough to get to one of your seminars when you were over in the UK this year um, at uh, at Nathan Leverton's gym, and you were talking about micro positions. Huh. And this is this is something I wanted to get into because when you talk about how you can make the most of your training time. I think, could you could you just explain that quickly to, to our listeners? Um, so, um, well, everyone would agree that um, 
Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is about position. Yeah, you know, we've all heard it, yeah. right? Position, mm-hmm. position, position yeah. before submission. And then so so then that that begs a very obvious question. What positions are you talking about? Um, yeah. so it'll be so it's like side control, you know, and we can all rattle them off, north, south, and mount, et cetera, et cetera. But but then then you you have a, a, a that'd be if, if there were ten of us. Mm-hmm. You know, I bet we'd come up with, a, with 10 different lists, you know, because your list might have a, a position on it that I wouldn't have sure. on it and so forth. So I, I, I make distinctions between things um, like, you know, anyone does that delves, that does a deep dive into any subject. One of the things they learn very quickly is to make distinctions between things that people who haven't taken the deep dive don't make. Right. Um, you know, so like I can't tell the difference between red wine and white wine. It's all just petrol, you know, like, <laughs> um, but, but I'm sure there is, you know, and someone would, that would make them an expert and me an idiot. Um, so um, there are distinctions between these different positions. So, so, so I, I, would, I would say the positions that we would all, if there was 10 of us and we mm-hmm. all had to, and we all agreed that, these things mount side control. If they are all a position, mm-hmm. then I would call those primary positions. Primary positions meaning we would all agree mm-hmm. that you have to have them for bigger jack. Then I think there's secondary positions. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit weird. Like it might be like katakatami, it might be kezakatami, you know, it might be maybe even lockdown or something mm-hmm. that's a little bit out of the normal. There might be some people mm-hmm. in the room that haven't done that, even though they've trained BJJ for five years ago. Lockdown? What are you talking about? Um, so there'll be some positions. So I would call those secondary. We're not all right. on board with it. Yeah. So then if you if you follow that logic and you agree with it, if we've got primary, then secondary that we don't agree with, what, what's after that? There must be tertiary positions. So there's an infinite number of those. So if I have to move from side control to north-south, how do I get there? Mm-hmm. And, and you could thin slice that up, you know, as many times as you wanted to, an infinite amount in theory, um, right? And so now you've got, you know, side control with five degrees of hit, eight degrees of hit, more leaning. And so if you can divide that up into two or three different positions, that transition, like like, like frames of a movie, <laughs> then you, you can have more and more what I will call micro positions. <laughs> Higgy Machado, my coach, used to say the person with the most positions wins. Now, that's kind of a funny thing to say, and I didn't understand it for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, now I think I, I do understand what he's saying because if you if you have, you know, eight positions between side control and north-south and you're on side control of me and you move to north-south, I'm very unlikely to escape. Mm-hmm. But if you only have side control and then a big mess and then north-south, I will escape, you see. So sure. I think micro positions are interesting. But the other thing about it is you can mm-hmm. get some little micro position, you know, like, some little thing that's out of the ordinary. And with only, ten, I'm going to make a figure, 10 hours of practice at it, you might be one of the best in the world at that. Mm. Whereas I ask you to become yeah. the best in the world at the mount, I can't do it. Yeah. I haven't got enough time left in my life to do it only because there's people that have already had a 40-year head start. You know, <laughs> so, so it's if I put the challenge out there, I want you to become the best person in the world at closed guard, you know, you've got your work cut out for you. Yeah. But if I said, I want you to become the best in the world at, you know, inverted headlock control, doing headlock control from the bottom on the side, there's prop, there might only be a hundred people in the whole world doing it, you know, so you put in a hard semester, you might be number one. So I think that's kind of interesting from a investment point of view, right? You're meaning, your return on the time invested in a micro position 
is more likely to give you a big payoff than, you know, on a common position. If I said that in a way that everyone understands, I hope so. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a really interesting idea because I mean, when you said that, it seemed to me that um, I mean, when you think of a position, it's it's somewhere where you you you're comfortable there. You, it's like mm-hmm. I know what I'm doing here. I know where I'm going. I'm, I'm comfortable being here. I think, mm-hmm. um, and I think from what you said is the more of those that you have, you know, the, the more places where where you're comfortable and you know exactly what you want to do from there and you've spent time there um obviously that's going to put you at a huge advantage over somebody who's still trying yeah. to figure out what's going on um the so, way that was first explained to me um by the machados was you start out jiu-jitsu mm-hmm. swimming in an ocean with no land inside yeah there's sharks <laughs> that's them <laughs> um and and you don't even know how to swim very well, so yeah. you're going to die. Yeah. Um, but then what happens is you spot an island. Mm-hmm. So you make your way to the island. And when you get on that island, you've got your little yeah. place you're happy, side control, right? Yeah. And then after a time, you, you see another island and another mm-hmm. and another. And the more you train, the less water, the more land until there's mm-hmm. no water left. That was the way it was first explained to me. Sure. Same as what, yeah, same idea. I think, I mean, this overlaps with something that I often talk about with people when I'm talking about uh, rehab from injuries is that um, there are there are certain positions or there are certain moments that have a disproportionate effect on how successful you are. So you might only spend 1% of your time there when you're competing, but it might have... 20% of the the difference between success and failure, what happens in that, in that space. And that's, those are the spaces that you want to sort of pull out and say, right, let's magnify that. Let's spend a bit more time there and and figure out how we can do that well. And then when you put that back into the, um, into that competitive environment, again, you know, it's a very small proportion of, your competitive time, but it has a disproportionate effect on on your success. Um, yeah. so I suppose that's a similar idea in terms of in terms of training. Yeah, I mean, certainly there's so much to focus on mm-hmm. um, that you, you can't. It's like it's like building a house, designing a house. The normal way is you go to an architect and they spend the money. You've got a budget yeah. of a million dollars to build your house mm-hmm. or whatever it is, and they spend that money uniformly. Mm-hmm. But you don't live uniformly. right i want to live i want to spend more of that money where i'm living and hanging out and less of it on the back wall of my house which is against a cliff (laughs) so those bricks can be the cheaper bricks you know and and i make them so i think you need to be tactical um where you put effort or money or training or friendships or anything i think you can't just be scattergun or have this uniform way of expending things, energy, yeah. love, emotions and stuff. I think you need to be tactical. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the idea of trying to be good at the bits that other people aren't, I suppose, as well, when it comes to something like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it's find where the gaps are in everyone else's knowledge and s- exploit those, I suppose. Yeah, well, yeah, that's like the Southpaw advantage in boxing, okay. right? Sure. Yeah, you get to see all the orthodox guys every night, but they only get to see the Southpaw guy one out of every fifteen, or whatever it is. Yeah. I don't know. Nathan would know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, I suppose some something else that I wanted to wanted to touch on with you um, 
Um, because you're somebody who's very successfully made a career out of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Now, I speak to a lot of people who have been doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu or maybe another combat sport for, for some time, and they're looking at um, – they're, they're looking at trying to make a career out of it. And I'll say, right, this is how I want to make a living. Um, would you have any advice for those people? So, I mean, first of all, whether that's a good idea, you know, what things you might want to think about before going down that route. And also, if you are going to do that, mm-hmm. how you can um, do that successfully. You're a, you're a smart girl. You, you, <laughs> um, you, I say that with all love and affection. Don't be offended by the girl thing. Um, um, yeah, it, I was lucky, um, mm-hmm. you know, and when I met, and you, you would appreciate that, that, that there is a thing called luck, um, and yeah. it, it does really play a role. Uh, you can just yes. be in the right place at the right time. And it's yeah. usually about, I think luck usually refers to timing. Like yeah. if you're the first yeah. person selling mangoes yeah. in an apple market, you get to establish <laughs> yourself and you get to do all that. And then everyone comes in later on, tries, but you're ahead of the game. That yeah. was me. So no, through no effort of mine other than my natural curiosity and I, maybe I was a little bit of an early adopter. I've always been an early adopter at things, which you pay a price for that. Like I just upgraded yeah. my operating system to Catalina. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> you know, so you, you pay a price for being an early adopter. Um, but, but you also gain an advantage if it pays off, right? Yeah. So there's that. Um, and so, so I, don't want, I don't want people to think like, Anyone can just do it. You know, sometimes the first people in there, if they think it through and have a little bit of luck go their way, can do better than average mm-hmm. through no effort or, you know, just, just because they were there first. Um, now, should people do that? That's an interesting question because I actually think most people should not. Um, like if someone's got a job and mm-hmm. they want to monetize their hobby and the, mm-hmm. their hobby happens to be martial arts or BJJ, um, and they go, wow, you know, I, I see my instructor, he's making a living. Wouldn't it be great to just do what I love as a hobby for a job? <laughs> um, now, that is an error uh, a lot of the time, you know, because, they, because there's work and effort involved that, that, you know, like the great example, I've seen this happen so many times in martial arts, but I'll give you a different field, fly fishing. So you go fly fishing, uh, you know, out there to a beautiful little stream. It's lovely. You walk along, you see a few fish, you spot, you catch them, you release them, you have a coffee, you're talking to your buddy about life and this and that. And it's fantastic because you do it, you know, like 10 days a year. Yeah. You want to now start guiding people every day to the same stream. <laughs> Two weeks in, you realise you're in hell. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um. So all the joy's gone out of this thing mm-hmm. that you love. Yeah. So I don't think mm-hmm. that you should monetize your passion. Mm-hmm. I think your passion monetizes you. So what I mean by that is you were passionate about mm-hmm. the martial art. Yeah. Why not just use that passion, the fuel, mm-hmm. to do another job, do whatever you're already doing, maybe a little bit better way or you know, a different area or something where you feel happy enough mm-hmm. and you tend to your hobby those two or three or four nights a week and keep loving it. Do both. And, and if you tend, if you want to make a bit of a living out of it, make some pocket money out of it. Make that 20,000 pounds a year out of it mm-hmm. and still do your job and get your 60. So you've got your 80,000 pounds, but, you know, 20 of it's like, this is fantastic. And, mm-hmm. you know, 
so only take people guiding for trout fishing on the days you wanted to go anyway, like, you know. Um, I would that, say to that, people, the, uh, it, it's brilliant being self-employed because you get to work whichever seven days a week you want. Um. <laughs> that's good. So, so there's that, but um, yeah. so that's something. Now, now, if, if then the third thing, um, mm. which is you're pressing me to say no, then they, they, they've made it. They've made up their mind that mm. they want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, overheads will kill you. So you've you, yeah. uh, what I what I what I would see is you've got to find a way. Like Chris Howder is a great example. He's mm. done a garage. Yeah. His overheads are zero. He's got. Let's just say I don't know. Let's say he's got fifty students. <laughs> But it's 50 students. Now, if he was renting a place for $60,000 a year, he'd have to have 80 students just to cover that, um, plus he's 50, so that's yeah. 130. Yeah. You're better off to have a garage with 40 than 130 mm-hmm. down the road where you've still got a rates and insurance and headaches. Yeah. And if you lose 10 students through winter, you're going, oh, my God, if you lose 10 students in your garage, you have another cup of tea. Um, <laughs> So I, there's lots of ways, you know, I, I would say to someone, like, you've got to go in low, go in part-time, find a place that you could rent out three nights a week um, or something like that where you've got to keep your overhead super low and test it out. Because if you can't make a living like just doing that, mm-hmm. you can't make a living going bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and going bigger is not always good. Mm-hmm. It's not always good. I, I know people that have got 400 students, but they need 380 to keep the doors open. They're suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing, if you do it, which I've, I've always believed very strongly in is I believe in diversity. So you've got to have diversity income streams, you know, so you want to have an income stream from teaching privates an income stream from teaching seminars or clinics an income stream from just the students doing that, then an income stream from selling books and whatever it is, but you need multiple income streams. Any single income stream is always in peril of drying up and then you're going to be, have a problem. So I've, I've got always six or eight income streams and, and that's why I've been able to get to the point where I don't have to work anymore if I don't want to. I think that's really important. And none of those income streams were ever very remarkable, you know, in and of themselves. They were quite, you know, what, what's the word, modest. But altogether is good. So I think that that's an important thing. Plus planning, you know, thinking ahead. Like you, Because a lot of martial artists that I've met just think for today. Yeah. You know, and, and sure, you want to get all Eckhart Tolle and living in the now and all of that stuff, but you want to put 10% of your brain on what's going to unfold next year or here's something else three decades from now. Yes. <laughs> um, you, you know, so, 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 so you, you want to, you know, put some, like, like let's think about fighting, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you are in the now, you're in the moment, mm-hmm. you're dealing with what's going on, but, but some part of your brain, I don't know, 5% mm-hmm. or something is thinking about, if I do pass the guard, I know what I'm going to be doing. You know, so some part of you has to be thinking about the future. You can't all be about now. And, I suppose and it's, it's, it's looking at an overall strategy as, as, as well as the, the individual tactics that you're looking at at the moment. It's what's the bigger yeah. game plan. Um, yes. Yeah. And, uh, and ultimately, you know, well, why are we doing it? Because you want to feel better about yourself. Why do you want to feel better at yourself? Because, because, because uh, let me think about that uh, life. Oh, yeah, life. I want to feel better about living my life. I want to have a better life. Oh, really? You want to have a better life? I don't see that you're acting in a way that's going to give you a better life 20 years from now because you're spending more money than what you're earning. <laughs> so you're, like, you're going to suffer later yeah. on. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you, need to, you need to be generous to your future self. <laughs> 
Yes. Yeah. I think that um, that bigger picture thinking is something that uh, people often struggle with. Well, certainly early on in a career, um, it's something that uh, I suppose you realise as you go along and you start thinking, hang on a sec, I haven't got as much time as I thought I did. Um, yeah, certainly don't, don't misunderstand. I, I didn't I didn't arrive at this yeah. thinking until I was like um, somewhere 35 to 40, mm. somewhere in there. Yeah. Not as a kid. <laughs> I suppose... Hey, in terms of um, the people who have gone down the route of trying to, to monetize their, their martial arts or their combat sports, um, does this tie back into what you're talking about with micro positions earlier about sort of trying to find that unique niche that um, where there, there isn't a lot of activity? If you're doing something that everyone else is doing and there's a, there's a large amount of competition there and it's very difficult to, um, to get ahead in that sort of marketplace. But if you find something that there's fewer people doing where you can stand out, yeah. is, that, is that something that you, you think about? Um, well, I don't think about that because I just I did that anyway. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I, I've always been nichey. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I think that's you know, um, as as I said, <laughs> if you're the only person selling mangoes in an apple market, yes. yeah, um, th- that's that's what made me think. It's, it's it, there's that overlap there with it's um, it's a similar sort of concept. Um, yeah, then you can set your price. Yeah, um, you know, because because if everyone's selling the same thing at the same day, yeah. It's an auction and the price is going down. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because you're trying to sell it. I'm trying to sell the same exact apartment in a, yeah. in a complex of apartments that were all, we all bought them off the plan, a mm-hmm. hundred of them. Yeah. And we're all the same kind of special idiot that bought <laughs> off the plan with this idea that three years from now when they're finished, they'll all be worth a hundred thousand pounds more than they worth now. Let's all do that. So we all mm-hmm. jump in. Finally, it's built. But it's not true because what happens is we all desperately need to sell. I've got to sell before you and you've got to sell before me. So I'll undercut you by 5K. You undercut me by 5K. The price ends up being lower a lot of the time than what we originally paid. Whereas if you buy a house that's already landlocked, it's in a sea of houses and you can't get in there. Yeah. It's a unique thing, right? So um, we can't all – if everyone's selling the same thing, it doesn't help yeah. the price <laughs> that, you know, I suppose I, I remember a time when, um, I mean, for example, in the UK, I remember a time when, uh, I mean, there, nobody knew any black belts, you know, it was, uh, if you, if, if you knew somebody who knew a purple belt, you were ahead of the game. Um, but, um, and, uh, and if you, if you had somebody who was a black belt would come over and do a seminar, that was a big thing, and people would really make a, a, an effort to go and attend that. And and now, of course, you've got lots more um, people. I mean, the sport's massively evolved. It's much better for people coming into the sport, um, but also it means that there's a lot more competition in that market. So for seminars and things like that, there's a lot, there's a lot more people teaching that. Um, so it becomes much more about finding that unique selling point of you like and you know what is it that you do better than everyone else um, rather than 
doing, I mean, doing the basics well, there's always going to be, you know, room for that, especially when you're teaching a school and teaching beginners. But um, on one level, if you want to distinguish yourself from everyone else, it's finding something that, what is it that you do that's different? And that's quite challenging because the way that's happening now, of course, is that people win a tournament, you know, um, with a world championship or something, and they they win it with, you know, knee shield. Mm-hmm. And so every, so just for a short amount of time, yeah. um, like one of my, <laughs> one of my former students, a guy called Lockie Giles, mm-hmm. um, he's just, he's a physiotherapist in Melbourne. Um, we gave him his black belt, but he's went on and he came third in the ADCC the other week. Yes. Like heel hooking, yeah. like all these world champions and monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lockie has put out his DVD set mm-hmm. that he's had poised and ready to go. Yeah. And he would want to because, like, I hope he has a long career. Yeah. But the other side of it is that two years from now, there's a different Lockie Giles. Yeah. And then two years from now, then there's another one and then another one and it's your Banana Rama, not mm-hmm. the Rolling Stones. <laughs> you know, Banana Rama, they're, um, they're a pop group that lasts for three months. So everyone can have a hit yeah. song. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, you know, how many of those pop songs last, you know, yeah. as opposed to being something like Mick Jagger, you know, it's, yeah. so that's different. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to be the Rolling Stones. You don't want to be some mm-hmm. top of the pop charts unless you're, you have a real job because you, you might only be able to capitalise for a very, very short yeah. amount of time. But that, that often, that, that can, the same thing can be said there, Rosie, for any, any professional athlete really. Yes. They, they have to, they've got yeah. a very short window and, and it's not even that they become irrelevant. There's just other people coming up. Yeah. You know, and it, but they're still great. But I'm sorry that, that we've got to give these. I I coached the um, Geelong Cats, Geelong. That's Australian the football <laughs> team, um, one of the best teams in the country for <laughs> Australian football, not soccer. It's a football. Yeah. And but and they've got some players there that were like peak peaking, beautiful, like some of the best couple in the country. And then they're not in the team next year, not because they can't perform. But they have to let – there's a 1,000 people crawling to get into that team at the bottom and they have to let them in. <laughs> they can't say to the public, stop, until this guy becomes, you know, no, yeah. they've got to give him a run. So it doesn't even matter how good you are. <laughs> you, most people have a very short shelf life, so you better capitalise. Or yeah. find a way that that doesn't – find a way that, that you, you won't be contained by that mould. You know, find <laughs> a way to be the Rolling Stones. That that's tricky, and I suppose that goes back to what you were saying about having a long term plan as well, and sort of you know what's going to happen after this. You know, yeah, five, ten, fifteen years. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's not hard. It's just that you do have to be disciplined. You have to apply the same discipline you do to your training to that. Sure, seeing that seeing that done. I, I used to what help help. What helped me was, you know, I'm sure you've heard it, you know, save 10% of everything you've earned. Mm-hmm. Um, not only save 10%, but then invest it and then invest the interest so you get the compounding effect. But it's easier said than done. Mm-hmm. I, I struggled with it, but then I reframed it. And instead of saving 10% of everything that I made, I learned to live on 90% of everything that I made. Um, that was easy. Saving yes. 10% was hard. <laughs> So, so sometimes you just got to find the right way, 
you know, to think about it that's comfortable and resonates with you. So saving, learning to live on 90%, that's, that's like a challenge and you can do that. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and then later on you'll, you'll be happier. <laughs> again, talking about thinking long-term, um, I suppose this is where I get into, um, into, into my area a little bit is somebody's um, starting out in Brazilian jiu-jitsu or maybe another combat sport. Um, what advice would you give them about l- looking after their body for the long term? So what do you want to do early on to make sure that you have a better time of things further down the line? I think people are just better off now anyway than what they were 30 years ago. 30 years ago, we were doing stupid things. You know, um, we would do regularly 1,000 repetitions of a technique. Mm-hmm. You know, doing 1,000 repetitions of anything besides perhaps walking is generally not a good idea <laughs> uh, because your joints, it's got a shelf life. Um, mm-hmm. And so you'll pay a price for that later on. And then depending on genetics, I think, um, you pay less of a price or more of a price. Um, so I think that I, I think that people should do some supplementary strength and conditioning training. Yes. Um, yeah. and, and that was something that we didn't do back then. You know, we just mm-hmm. smashed out the martial art training. Mm-hmm. But then you've got all these weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you get injured, you get really badly injured. I tend mm-hmm. I was getting more badly injured back then than I am now because you are, mm-hmm. you know, if you were taken to an extreme yeah. range of motion, you're really weak at that point. Yeah. Because um, we didn't understand about PNF stretching. We didn't understand about, um, you know, plyometrics training. We didn't even understand about Tabata interval training or anything like that. We just trained. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you, you need to do some supplementary training. And if I had to pick one kind, I would certainly say do some strength and conditioning because that gives you a little bit of a, a, little bit of a leeway, you know, a little bit of fat. Sure, sure. You know what I mean? This is is a big bee in my bonnet. I I, I talk about this all the time. Um, What would you say to the people who say, actually, you're better off spending, if you've got a limited amount of training time, you're better off spending all of that doing jiu-jitsu. What's what's your answer to that? Um, Yeah, nah. Uh, (laughs) um, We have this saying, yeah, nah. Do you have that saying? Yeah, Yeah, nah. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So so, um, first of all, you know, you, it's like your car, you know, you, you, you've got it. People spend more money, I'm sure, on their car. You know, sure, you've got to drive your car around and 90% of your stuff is driving your car around, but you you still got to put petrol in it and oil and water and then you've got to get it serviced and you've got to put tyres on it. So you've got to do that for yourself too. And um, But that doesn't have to be like it might start out being like it's this annoying thing that you have to do, but just like brushing your teeth or doing anything else after a year or something like that, some magic amount of time, it just becomes part of your routine. <laughs> like today I, I woke up or I got a chest infection in India a couple of weeks ago and I've been coughing my guts out all weekend, but nevertheless this morning I still went to the gym and I, instead <laughs> of doing the cardio part, I could have just said, no, nah, I'm not going to do it. But instead of doing the cardio part, I just did strength, um, you know, and didn't get my heart rate up too much and lifted a, did, did a bunch of cleans with some 25 kilo, 24 kilo kettlebells and some pullovers and things like that. So you can always modify it. You can always, you know, almost, I mean, sometimes you can't if you've got like a back injury and you can't move. But most of the time I see a lot of people go, I've hurt my wrist, I can't train. 
What? That, what? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> I mean, my goodness. You know, you can almost always find a way to do it, but you, you'll get such a benefit out of it because <laughs> then you'll give it, if you, if you can just make yourself a little bit stronger, a little bit more <laughs> stronger, especially at the extreme ranges of movement, you're, you're, you're pushing your, the, better, the best version of yourself into the training. Yeah. Instead of some weak version. And if someone did the math on it, mm-hmm. I'm sure you're going to work out. If someone says to me, oh, but I haven't got the time, and then you look at the amount of times they get injured, the time they yes. get off training from the injury, yeah, they wouldn't have done that. Yeah. And that's, it's more efficient to actually yeah. give over a day. To, mm-hmm. Plus this, Rosie, here's something. Mm-hmm. Let's say if you did mm-hmm. 10 kickboxing trainings a week. Yeah. And suddenly – you know, your kids leave home, mm-hmm. so you find yourself with a tiny bit more time mm-hmm. and you say, well, you know what, I can squeeze in another two. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get any value out of the other two. You're already doing 10. Mm-hmm. Another two sessions of kickboxing on top of 10 might make mm-hmm. a 2% difference to the outcome, mm-hmm. but if you put those other two sessions of strength and conditioning, you'll make a 5,000% difference to the outcome, right, or, or, no. walking, or, or yo-yoing or, you know, frisbeeing. You know, so you've got to put you want to you want to you want to get return on your investment in time. So I think you can pe- a lot of people can trade a tiny bit of their their time in, and maybe you know instead of training in the gym twelve times a week and they go home alone to their little one bedroom apartment, if they just trained eight times a week and spend two times a week doing strength strength conditioning training, and the other two times walking the dog in a dog park where the chicks are or doing yoga, <laughs> then they might. Find your life turns a bit better because they find a partner, right? You know what I mean. <laughs> Where people put their time, it's it's worthwhile asking. You know, am I putting it in the right spot? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's that's something that I I come up against a lot is when people say, "Well, I can get fit doing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, so I can if I put all my time into to do on the mat training and, and grappling, yeah, that's all I really need. Um, I don't need to do all this extra stuff." Um, I think I'm forever trying to explain to people that actually, if you do a bit of this, you'll get less injured. You'll be able to spend more time doing the stuff that you really want to be doing, um, and it might make you better at it as well. Um, but uh, but for me, the, the big advantage to doing a bit some strength and conditioning training is um, it just makes you more resilient. Um, I think yeah. um, it's. Um, <coughs> And again, as you get older, that's going to become more evident. Yes. You know, in the same way that if you haven't put aside 10% of everything you earn and you get to 60, it's going to become really, really evident yes. why, that, why that was a dumb idea not to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it, it, it'd be, it's sad that people have to get to that and realise because then it's, then it's getting too late. Yes. It's it's much harder to play catch up at that point than when you address it earlier. Yeah. Again, this is something in terms of the, the physical side of things. I I talk to people about a lot uh, in terms of how to how to prevent problems in future because I mean because I, I treat a lot of combat sports people. I see I treat a lot of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu guys, and I see the same things coming into my clinic. Week in, week out, you know, I see the same the same problems, and then I start thinking, well, instead of dealing with it here, how can we deal with that a few steps 
down the line beforehand before it becomes a problem now, you know what can we what can we change about how we're doing things so that we don't get so many of these i mean neck injuries is a classic one actually i see that a lot um but uh, persuading people to address that early on that's um that's the challenge i haven't quite figured that out yet how to get people interested before because it becomes a problem people can't imagine the future yeah yeah. Well, not very well. You know, we aren't good at that because it's yeah. it's just it's, it's it's it hasn't unfolded yet. Mm-hmm. It's too many unknowns. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but we the the past we you know we are better at maybe remembering yes. things in our past and then learning lessons. Mm-hmm. But you've yeah. got to apply them for the future a lot of yeah. the time if you want good outcomes and. It's really hard to do that because, but the way that it worked for me uh, or helped, the way I helped myself address that was mm-hmm. I know with a fair degree of certainty that mm-hmm. tomorrow is going to turn up. Yes. And, and the, my future self then, mm-hmm. how, what am I doing now? What little thing can I do now mm-hmm. to make that guy happier? So it's kind of like a selfish approach, right? Yeah. But, right? So, so, like everyone can be generous to themselves, yes. as is evidenced <laughs> by the world we live in. Um, so, so use that because we seem yeah. to be pretty good at it. But just point people's attention yeah. to hey, your future self. What kind of self do you would you like that guy to wake up? You know, mm-hmm. three years from now, with the shoulder injury, without the shoulder injury, with more mm-hmm. money in the bank, without more money in the bank, with a good relationship, without and so forth. You know, so. Mm. I don't know if anyone listened, but that's what I tell people. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really good point because I think there's a, there's a tendency. It's, it's something that humans in general, I think, struggle with. But I think there's a tendency to think of our future selves as a different person, mm. Mm. as to the person we are now. It's uh, sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect. Um, yeah. Realizing actually, I am going to be there in this amount of time. Um, Mm. I think that's uh, that's something that, again, I think it may be something that we get better at as we get older. I mean, certainly I I know that I find that easier to do now than I did 10 years ago. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Excellent. Um, right. Well, thank you very much for your time, John. Um, before we finish, uh, do you have any final words of wisdom, anything that our listeners can take away with them? Um, um, looking good and going nowhere, you know, like there's a, there's a good one. Um, looking <laughs> good and going nowhere too. I mean, we don't need, I think, I think a lot of the times if I, cause I'll, how I just arrived at that is mm-hmm. if I had gone back, what advice would I have given myself if I could yeah. have gone back mm-hmm. 30 years, mm-hmm. you know, and I probably would have, that's one of the things I would have said, don't, don't, don't be so concerned with other people, what other people think, mm. um, you know, because if, if we want to look good and people all want to look good, no one wants to look so silly in front of people or they don't want to trip over because then the tribe, you know, you go to the bottom of the totem pole and you don't get the good bit of liver. Um, so, you, so, you, <laughs> so, so yeah. that, and that's hardwired into us to not, yeah. not look silly. But, 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 but again, that's exactly, you know, uh, caring too much about what other people think about our views, the paths we take, what we say and things like that, you know, we, we limit ourselves, we shackle ourselves too much. So I think, you know, that um, people can be 
it's very easy to be so focused on looking good that you actually you look good but you're not getting anywhere. So you need to be able to give yourself permission to stuff up, fall over, trip. Yeah. Um, but 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 in such a way that you don't die. Like 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 yes. You know, you, you can't, it's one thing to say be a risk taker, but, you know, mm-hmm. we are genetically predisposed toward not taking risks because if our ancestors took risks, we wouldn't be here. So um, yeah. so you want to have a safety net, you sure. know, and, and take small risks, small yes. risks, and, and then if you ha- you got a safety net, and that safety net could be financial, could be could be network, could be your family, it could be your friends, it could be, you know, it can be emotional, it could be a lot of things, but you want to have a safety net. The safety net in jiu-jitsu is tapping, you know, so. Yes. Um, so don't worry so much about what people think. Uh, keep the idea in your head looking good and you'll go nowhere. So take some risks, but make sure that you, you what do you call it, limit the risks and have a safety net. Build your safety nets all the time. Yeah. yeah. That, uh, it's, it's interesting, actually, because one of the things that, it, that my jiu-jitsu coach said to me recently was um, that uh, if you want to get better, you need to tap more. Uh, so you need to be putting yourself in positions where you're um, you're in trouble more often um, and uh, i think that uh, again it's, it's it's one of those useful reminders once in a while that actually sometimes you need to take more risks in order to in order to improve um, i think well when you're in those bad positions no one wants to be there but here's something yeah and i'll bring it into life just quickly to wind up but you mm. know you you need to find a way to experience joy and fulfillment in a bad position, mm. right? Because it's going to happen. Yeah. And so if, you, if you're only feeling good and going, yay, great night, based on you're only in good positions, you're consigning yourself to a lot of bad nights yeah. and I don't want to have any bad nights. Yeah. And if I bring that in life, I don't want to, I want to be happy all the time and I want to be joyful all the time, not just when things are going swimmingly. <laughs> so I, we really do need to be able to, the crude way to say it is embrace the suck. Mm-hmm. But that's not good enough. You actually, you want to really, so you know what, I had a great night tonight underneath side control, in an umbra, in a kimura, in the guillotine, mm-hmm. and that was great. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because that's not easy to do. And if you can do yeah. that, you have joy everywhere, then there's no bad training nights. Sure. Yes. There's often those those bad positions are the places where you're you're actually learning the most. But um, but it doesn't feel so good, I guess. So it's uh, yeah. it's reframing that. Good. Yeah. Yeah, that's that, it. That's I it. think that's, uh, that's, that's definitely a good a good takeaway there. Uh, thank you very much for your time, John. Um, I'm talking uh, to you. It's it's been fantastic to to catch up with you again. And when are you when are you na- next back in the UK? Um, it's, I, I'm I'm frazzled now. I spent okay. six hours today, and it's all planned. Next June, I'm back there. I just booked all my flights, and then post the UK, I booked all my flights to 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 Rome, to Venice, accommodation, and then Sardinia, and then Zurich, and I've just. Did it. Took me the whole day. I'm wiped. But yeah, wow. I'll be back in June. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, yeah. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing you again and uh, and catching let's up. Have cream, let's have cream tea at Coombe Abbey again. Yes. I, I'm yes. staying there again after Nathan's it's, session. Excellent. It's in my diary. Um, oh, I'll see great. You then, Perfect. John. 
Hi, I'm Steve and I produce the Combat Sports Clinic podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed this episode. If so, you should head over to our website at www.combatsportsclinic.net and sign up to our free newsletter. It will keep you up to date with our latest content releases and other news about Rosie and the athletes she's working with. We also share any offers and discounts with our mailing list first, so it pays to sign up. Thanks for listening and we'll speak to you again soon.